Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. Four! Breakfast! So stand by. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the second of two big Friday editions of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Today, I'm Roan. Noah's still here. We're going to be getting things started with the congressman who's representing Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Always happy to be sitting down with Mr. Andy Ogles. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure hosting you. We had a busy end of the week up on Capitol Hill. Once you guys reconvened, uh, we were able to get in and out with uh, a bunch of newsmaking items that we want to touch with you on today. I think most importantly, and at the forefront of something that House Republicans have been battling with and struggling with throughout the course of the entire 118th session, is the newest continuing resolution that was voted on yesterday. And uh, it, it kind of extends everything through uh, two steps again. I believe it's through the 9th and 22nd of March. But there seem to have been some more, I guess, optimism towards the agreements that were made going into this thing. Again, no one wants to see uh, the COVID era spending, the Pelosi budget levels continuing down the path. But um this is where we're at, and, and there's a chance for us to get all of these appropriation bills done in, in, in a year-wrong resolution that's going to get things funded a little bit more the way they're supposed to. I saw that, you know, a lot of people came out yesterday after the vote and, and were extremely disappointed in it, but I just want you to kind of explain to our listenership where we're at with it right now and, and what are we looking at over the course of the next 22 days? Yeah, so we, it's a laddered CR, and it's very short-term, so it's the 8th and the 22nd. And, um, and But what that does is, so I'll back up a step. We weren't supposed to be in Washington, D.C. this week. Uh, so the fact that we had to go back is indicative of the fact that we're, we're not on pace, we're behind schedule, we're having to make things up. And reinforcing that is the, this notion that we had to do literally like a week and a three-week uh, CR uh, to, to kind of get us through to next week. And then I'll set expectations fairly low for what's going to happen next. I think um, ultimately the the speaker, by way of pressure from just others, will end up capitulating, and we won't see any drastic cuts or even minor cuts for that matter. Now, what the, the Freedom Caucus has been advoc- advocating for is let's just go ahead and do a longer-term uh, spending plan, continuing resolution, whatever you want to call it, but then automatically trigger the 1% cut on non-defense spending. What you should note is, is you know, if it's a 1% cut kind of off of the top, but you're excluding defense, in some areas that cuts actually a little deeper. It could be 5% in some areas. So, so it, it has the opportunity to actually cut something out of the budget. It's not a huge number, but that being said, it's what we should be doing considering we're barreling towards $35 trillion in, in debt. This time next year, we'll have $36 trillion in debt. Like We've got a correct course here, and this path, this repeat of CR, CR, CR is not the way uh, we're going to accomplish that. And the reason is, as a continuing re- resolution typically continues current spending. It's a continuing resolution, so it continues current policy. So all the woke stuff, the funding of IRS agents, uh, FBI building, all the stuff that you and I don't want is going to ultimately get funded when you continue to continue resolutions, which is why I voted against it. I mean, it makes perfect sense right there. Now, heading down the road and over the course of the next three weeks, do you think uh, we're going to see kind of factions breaking off here, ones that think we might be able to get the appropriations bills done? I mean, it's been a a year already, and we still can't uh, negotiate and hash out. I believe the last four is is what we're stuck on. Or do you think they're going to be saying, like, listen, we're wasting our time here. Maybe we should just look at that long-term, year-long CR that's going to do the the across-the-board 1% cuts, which is going to be a a massive – and drastic reduction compared to what's going on now. 
That's right. Well, you know, so we, we did accomplish some things and the fact that we got eight done, it's just, you know, 72, 75% of the spending. So, you know, we can check part of the box, if you will. And, you know, what I would say is let's lay out a plan for how do we get this done next year? But that being said, you know, there's a, there's a new dynamic in this equation that wasn't here a week ago. And that is that Mitch McConnell is retiring from his leadership post. And so now you're going to have these four or five or six senators kind of jockeying to be the next leader, minority leader currently and presumably after the 24 election the majority leader and they need roughly 25 to call us around them so there's this opportunity for the senate republicans to, to kind of lurch right a little bit and so there's things that might be possible next week that would not have been possible 10 days ago because you might have a thune or somebody else i just use that name as a placeholder sure. that suddenly is going to be more conservative because they're trying to get the support of a ted cruz or a mike lee or a senator scott out of florida so uh it'll be interesting and there's no way to kind of guesstimate or predict how that plays out uh to be determined yeah, it is uh, wild. I, I did not expect Mitch McConnell's announcement the other day, as most people didn't as well. And uh, although he says he's going to remain in, in service for the rest of his term, I guess that's yet to be determined and probably on a daily basis, as is the case with most people whenever they got to get up and go to work in the morning. But, yeah, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of development. And, and I guarantee we could probably draw it up 10 different ways today, and we won't even get close to that 22 right, days right. from now. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep tracking it in real time. But there's a bunch of other stuff I want to talk to you about. Uh, okay. What do you now that the uh, transcript has been released from the Hunter Biden deposition closed door, uh, which he had before the committee the other day, you know, the, it, it seemed like whenever uh, it looked really damning for Hunter Biden, he was an addict who was struggling with that and, and going through some stuff with his family. And whenever it seemed like there were things that, okay, this doesn't look too bad, but it makes me look good. Then he was this brilliant former lawyer, former officer in the <laughs> Navy. And, 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 you know, the confirmation of Joe Biden being the big guy and where the 10% might have gone, even though apparently that doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, the whole time we're, we're laying out this timeline for him in this deposition, he's saying like, you know, well, I never included my father in any of my business dealings. But if you're going to meet with these high level business associates from China or Russia or Ukraine and, and dad was in town, why wouldn't you invite him for these dinners? Not because of it's anything to do with business. It's because he's dad. And I was just like, I can't believe that this is some of the stuff that came out of his mouth. But, you know, I, I know you guys are going to be providing a lot of oversight over this and then kind of deconstructing the whole narrative before we get to hopefully a public hearing. Doesn't sound like he wants to do it anymore, but uh, congressional right, Sabina might say otherwise. What do you think? Well, you know, I think that's the question is, will there be a public hearing? I, I doubt it. I'm skeptical, but we'll see. Can he be compelled to do it? Uh, can they, you know, by way of legalese, delay, 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 and then you're suddenly into into the election cycle. And I'm not overly optimistic. You know, I'm someone I, I offered articles of impeachment. I'm for impeaching Joe Biden. I think we have a, an obligation to hold him to that standard that he's clearly, in my mind, breached when you look at the evidence. But I'm not convinced that there will be an impeachment proceeding as we go forward, because currently, we just don't have the votes. And, and so, you know, and the clock is not our friend in this right. case. And I think that would be the strategy of the Bidens is let's let's drag this out as much as we can, because the closer we get into the summer, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to do some sort of impeachment. So to be determined. But as far as the testimony goes, it's what you would expect. You know, uh, it's kind of that obfuscation. I can't remember or I don't know if I did that or, well, you know, he's my dad. Of course, I'd invite him, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, clearly he was well coached and rehearsed and uh, probably did as about as good as he he could considering how damning some of the evidence is 
Yeah, it's wild to see uh, the Biden crime family continue to get uh, exposed and the amount of layers that, you know, the uh, three-headed monster of Comer and uh, Smith and, and, and Jim Jordan have been able to peel back to this point. But uh, like you said, to be determined, I think it's an ongoing investigation. Obviously it is. And, and every time they present new stuff to the American public, we can only imagine all the great stuff they've got going on behind closed doors trying to confirm it before, right. again, they release it. But, you know, on, on the other side of the hill yesterday, you, you had kind of a, a groveling affair. You had embattled Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin before committee talking about what happened when he kind of went off the grid for half a week uh, during the holidays and you know he had claimed to have done some things and there was never a drop of the ball in in regards to a line of succession for national defense we all know that's not true because you know his his direct surrogate was vacationing in the islands and and didn't know of it just like joe biden in the white house and the american public didn't know of it you know i thought one of the best parts of that back and forth testimony is where matt gates brought up the fact that there is no accountability at the top in this administration. I think this is, you know, covering politics for 35, 40 years now. And you, you just growing up and watching it and, and seeing how things have been wild over the past decade, if not more. This is the administration where no one gets fired for regardless of how bad things are. And Lloyd Austin right. has been at the forefront of so many of America's biggest failures in, in regards to national security, strategic readiness, and national defense, that this was just seemed to be the cherry on the on the top of the Sunday. And you would think like, okay, Alejandro Mayorka, sure, maybe Merrick Garland, of course, but then when you see this combined with like the Afghanistan withdrawal, other yeah, servicemen yeah. and women who have died around the globe in, in some of these botched attempts to try and stymie terrorists who are now taking pot shots at American servicemen and women all over the globe. And it's just wild the way this went down, but between him and Matt Gates talking about the accountability and then asking him, like, you you come before us asking for grace and understanding on a very sensitive, personal, health-related situation, kind of like what you did during the pandemic with COVID. How about letting those 8,600 servicemen and women come back? And he was just like, absolutely not. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me the lack of remorse or just any kind of human touch that this administration lacks it's like they will pander every way shape or form for you know uh, something that happens with a police officer or if there's some kind of cultural or social issue that they want to touch on but when it comes to like the things that would be like a slam dunk win for the biden administration you know what that does make sense congressman gates maybe we do need to reconsider bringing all those men and women back he just straight up said no and like honestly doesn't care how do you see Lloyd Austin making it through the next, you know, through the through November at least and, and, and remaining right, on right. his sec def after all of these failures that he's incurred throughout the course of his time as the uh, Joint Chief? Well, you know, you would presume after withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, you know, that would have been, you know, there's a window there afterwards that you would have presumed presume that Biden would have made a transition, you yep. know, uh, let him retire gracefully or something. Right. But, you know, so if you're not going to do a thing, you're never going to do it. Uh, and then, like you said, you know, there, there's an easy win here for the Biden crime family. I mean, I'm sorry, the president uh, that where he could <laughs> give offer grace to, to these uh, veterans who were medically discharged. because They didn't want to take the vaccine and, and bring them back to the military, restore them, make them whole, especially in light of some of the, the new information that's come out about the vaccines, that there was some risk associated with it, that wasn't previously uh, disclosed, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's an obvious win, but they're so dogged in this, this agenda that they're driving, they can't see past it, right? They can't, like you said, there's no human touch. There's no empathy. So he'll come and grovel and say, I need you to understand and give me grace. But then the moment that you ask for it, then they won't give it. And so again, he was out of reach. He's a secretary of defense. He was unreachable. That right there 
should be immediate reason for his dismissal. But but Joe Biden, quite frankly, is not in charge of this country. Uh, his advisors are. And I would ar- argue that Austin's got a seat at that table. So, of course, he's not going to fire himself. Yeah, it's, it's wild to see. I mean, I thought it was just kind of going to be like, you know, the usual. I mean, he was caught red handed. There's been a lot of stuff that was already extremely public. Everybody's had a chance to digest it. And I just thought it was going to be like a dunk fest for the Republicans that were sitting on the committee. But, you know, some of the back and forth, it just really kind of showed the, the attitude and the lack of empathy that this administration has for the the American people and, and, and the hardworking right. men and women who make this country work. I just thought it was really disheartening to see. And I hope at some point, maybe not now, but maybe in a future administration, he'll be held accountable for some of the stuff. Hey, listen, what they're trying to do with President Trump right now, they say, like, you know, we can bring up new cases any day. Like, once an insurrectionist, right. always an insurrectionist. Maybe for his failures in Afghanistan and all those lives that were lost in between, uh, we'll see some accountability for Lloyd Austin down the road. Speaking of President Trump, it was weird. You know, we're in a very weird election cycle right now when it comes to uh, what's going to happen in November. Not since Grover Cleveland defeated uh, Benjamin Harrison back in the day, the late 1800s, was do we have a non-incumbent incumbent running as Donald Trump is right now against Joe Biden, who yeah. was his direct successor and now head-to-head matchup with him in the general election, presumably. And, and we saw them both down on the U.S. southern border yesterday, someplace that Donald Trump is extremely familiar with, a lot of success during the mm-hmm. course of his administration. Administration, you know, for as much as the Biden administration likes to say they deported more people so far than Donald Trump did over the course of his four years, it's like they've also let in a hundred times more people than Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah. In addition, Donald Trump had about four million people staged on the other side of the Mexican border. You can't technically deport them if they're not coming into the country like Joe Biden's allowing either. But I mean, the optics yesterday was bad. Joe Biden, very, very stiff, making jokes about marks on the floor that he has to stand on. As soon as he started talking about the crisis on the border, he brought up climate change and then challenged Donald Trump to join him in pressuring House Republicans to get on board and get this pre-amnesty bill that they agreed on in the Senate passed and signed into law, something that Donald Trump would have to, you know, assumedly have to take on if he won the presidency again in November. When you saw both of these guys down there, I mean, Donald Trump is so beloved by the men and women who protect our borders and law enforcement in general. He even had people on the Mexican side of the border calling and waving to him when he was down there. I just think it's like the funniest thing. He was like the guy who supposedly was the the meanest person when it came to border security is getting, you know, fanboyed by illegals attempting to cross into the United (laughs) States. I thought it was pretty wild. But when you saw these two guys in action yesterday or lack thereof when it comes to Joe Biden, what did you think the optics were for the American people? And how is this message starting to resonate where, listen, we've seen a lot of really, really bad crime in major cities. Obviously, what happened in Athens, Georgia, just uh, just a couple weeks ago. And we're all still reeling from that as, uh, you know, the migrant crimes are are ramping up all over the country. But I think Americans are starting to come to terms with uh, this this border security that we have under this administration is just not what it's going to take to uh, maintain our national sovereignty. Well, you know, so when you, when you juxtapose, you know, the Biden press conference versus the Trump press conference, you know, one's dynamic, the other one's very staged. One is, you know, confident and has a message. The other one, like you said, is all over the place, whether it's climate change or, you know, the self-deprecation because he literally has to, he just, so he knows where to stand, they have to put tape on the floor, right? Yep. Otherwise, he'll get lost and just wander off into the desert. And I, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. I mean, you've literally seen him get lost in the Rose Garden uh, and you have Secret Service agents like shuffling, getting him back on the sidewalk so he knows where to go into, into the building. And it's so it's sad. And so I don't think, I do, uh, Donald Trump is our nominee. He is going 
to win the Republican nomination. I think Nikki Haley needs to drop out. I'm not convinced that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee. You know, I said this months ago. I was criticized for it by the left media. I was on Hannity, as a matter of fact, Hannity Radio. And I was like, look, I, I just don't see this guy. When you look at his polling numbers, when you look at the numbers of his vice president, it's not a winning ticket. You know, you're going to ultimately go against Trump. They're going to lose the White House. And at some point, the Democrats are going to panic. And fast forward to, to July, I think you're going to see there's going to be a switch there. The, the obvious choice would be Michelle Obama or maybe Gavin Newsom or them together. Uh, but again, I just don't think I don't see Joe Biden being a top of the ticket. You know, so you someone else runs uh, and whether, you know, Michelle wins or loses, Joe Biden will still be president after the election election. And then he can pardon his son and whomever else he wants to pardon. So, like, I think there's a plan here. Uh, we'll know here in a few months whether that comes to fruition. But, sure. you know, clearly Joe Biden is not in uh, control of his faculties and his State of the Union, I think, is going to be a hot mess. It, it'll be coming up. If you look back to his last one, he simply spent half of it criticizing Republicans and blaming Republicans and Trump for all the failings of his administration. And I think it's going to be a redo of that as he'll talk about how he has a plan about the, the rapes and the murders and the burglaries are because Republicans haven't done anything, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's going to try to shift that blame over to us when in reality with a stroke of the pen he could close that border but he doesn't have the courage to do it no it's the truth and you know that's the last thing i want to touch on was the uh little bit of a preview of the state of the union coming next week obviously we're going to have full and comprehensive coverage here on the show but it's great to hear what you guys are thinking it, going back to last year's it was a lot of propaganda a lot of demonizing of, of yeah. half essentially the american electorate you know i i saw people trying to get ahead of this this week uh you know even uh, scott perry was on fox business the other day and he was hypothesizing on whether Speaker Johnson could uninvite Joe Biden yeah. or, or if we even have to hold the State of the Union address potentially if there was a government shutdown obviously we avoided that but I mean you know it's one of those things where we are going to get ready to see one of those speeches where with Donald Trump presumptively being the nominee by March 12th he should have this thing wrapped up Joe Biden's going to try and get yeah. ahead of that by demonizing him and what the other side of the coin is going to look like for the American people which was a lot more prosperous before the COVID pandemic came around oh, during sure. Donald Trump's first term but uh, our House Republicans ready to, to hit back hard on the messaging that he's going to be pushing in addition to seeing Senator Britt ready to deliver the Republican yeah. response afterwards? Well, I was going to say, you know, they've, they've got uh, Senator Britt lined up. I don't know if you know her or have met her. She's feisty. She is. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. You know, I'm going to have to power through uh, <laughs> Joe Biden's speech and, you know, bite my lip the whole time, you know, maybe put in some earplugs because because it's just my, my blood is going to boil just like yours is going to. But then afterwards, we'll get the relief uh, of getting to see uh, Senator Britt's uh, you know, response or rebuttal to it. But but yeah, I mean, I would just say uh, I don't think it'll be a widely watched uh, State of the Union. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any enthusiasm for Joe Biden at all. Uh, and so I just think he's going to fall flat this summer. And again, I'll, I'll say it again. I don't think he's going to be the nominee. I think the Democrats are in panic mode. They're trying to you know stay and remain calm. But, you know, you have even the leftist media calling into question his cognitive abilities. That's intentional. Yep. They've gone out of the way to, to protect Joe Biden, to protect his failures, to protect his family. And for them to even mention 
or hint that there's something wrong, I think is a peek behind the curtain that they're ready to pounce and they're going to toss him out with the bathwater. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Lots of the things and lots of time before we head to the ballot box in November. And, and I feel like it's just getting started, even though we live in a new cycle now to where we used yeah. to get a news story maybe two or three times a, a year. And now it's like you can have a year's worth of news happen within 24 hours oh, and yes. wake up the next day and it's already cranking again. So, Congressman, yeah. we're going to leave it at that. Obviously, we're going to be live linking your congressional website in the show description today so everybody can check out all the great work you're doing catch up on the latest edition of your podcast which i saw dropped yesterday we shared it and uh if anybody wants to follow you on social media where can they find you you just go to rep ogles or rep andy ogles i'm easy to find we do have a newsletter we're not going to hound you but we try to give you the latest information obviously with me i'm fairly known for not having a filter i'm polite but uh what you see is what you get and you know where i stand on the issues if you were listening to this interview right now, you heard a couple of snippets of it interwoven into some of the answers that were given. This is the congressman who's representing Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. He's also fighting for all of America first. Representative Andy Eagles, thanks for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Absolutely. God bless. You know, there, there's a big enthusiasm gap. If you, if you look right now, there's you know, 26, 27 percent of the vote in uh, between the, the Democratic turnout, the Republican turnout. Uh, the Republican turnout is right now far trouncing the, the Democratic turnout. Um, and that's the percentage of, of the total vote that we're waiting to come in. It'll be interesting to see what comes in from Wayne County. Yes, I get that. But President Trump's number at the moment is actually more than all of the Democratic Party primary voters together. So I, I would say that President Trump, when looking at the amount of people who are coming out to vote for him mm -hmm. tonight, would be very encouraged by the amount of votes that Anderson he is getting compared so, to all the Democrats go. okay. uh, who have right. shown up. It's, it's all right, jumping back into the news portion of our show, getting things started on this second of two all-new Steak of Breakfast podcast on a busy Friday. Amro, Noah's still here. Yep. It was great kicking off the show with Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles and getting a clearer picture of what it looks like up on Capitol Hill at the moment. We are going to be doing a little bit of coverage now on Donald Trump's big win in the Michigan primary from Tuesday, happened after our show aired, in addition to some of the meltdowns we're now seeing over some of the legal proceedings that are going on around the president. We're also waiting for some breaking news today. Donald Trump and Jack Smith are in the same courtroom down in Florida waiting for a ruling on whether or not Donald Trump's scheduled May special counsel will begin on time. And if there's a ruling from Judge Cannon before we're done recording today, then we will bring you that. If not, you're going to have to catch it in the news cycle, and we'll talk about it next week on our Tuesday editions of the show. But, Noah, another historic win, upping the primary record to 6-0 and for Donald Trump in Michigan on Tuesday night. We explained it to our listenership as the first of two parts of what's going on in Michigan right now, where we had the Michigan primary on Tuesday, and that'll be followed up by the Michigan caucus this weekend. Donald Trump was able to take an overwhelming majority of the delegates from Nikki Haley. And then we look forward to tomorrow's events where Michigan's going to have their presidential caucus. 39 Republican delegates are up for grab. Idaho's going to have theirs as well. 32 delegates up for grabs. And Missouri is going to have a caucus as well tomorrow. 54 delegates are up for grabs. We'll be Haley's literally just hanging out waiting for Donald Trump to get sent to prison, right? That, that's her only reason? She has to be out after Super Tuesday. The District of Columbia and North Dakota will be having their primary and caucus events on the 3rd and 4th of March. Washington, D.C. has 19 points at stake, and there are 29 delegates available in Doug Burgum's North Dakota before we hit Super Tuesday next week, which we'll have a full preview of on our Tuesday editions of the show. So big wins for Donald Trump. 
No victory speeches, because remember, the primary and the caucus each have delegates. He'd have to get through tomorrow's, and we'll probably hear from him then. But Nikki Haley did take to the news cycle, and it's funny, where she's been kind of shunned on all of the conservative outlets, she's starting to get it on the, well, more progressive ones now. She started off on CNN, talking about how she was going to stay in the race through Super Tuesday, although when asked by Dana Bash live on the air, it didn't seem like she was as committal as she's been in her commercials. Let's hear. What does it say about your party that, with respect, they're not buying what you're selling, given the results that we've seen so far? Oof. Ouch. We've only seen a handful of states vote. I mean, look, I've said this before. As much as the media wants to jump ahead, we're taking this one state one day at a time. That's what this is about. You know, if I got out... When y'all were talking about it earlier, New Hampshire, South Carolina, whenever, it would be the longest general election race in presidential history. Still, if I got out today, it'd be the longest general election race in history. Good. America is blessed to be a democracy. Let people vote. Now in the next week, we're going to watch 20 states and territories vote. Let's let that happen. Governor. We are blessed to live in a country oh. where hope still reigns, and we off. need to Didn't look for that, that hope. We need to look for that America we want our kids to have, mm-hmm. and we need and to fight for Governor, it, and I'm going to fight for it every step of the way. Before I let you go on that note, you're committing that you are going to be in this race through Super Tuesday. What difference at this point does it make? I mean, we are in all the Super Tuesday states now. That's what this is all about, is making sure that we hit every state and letting so, yes. them know, look, there is a voice so, yes. out there for you. There is a way out. Yes, we are fighting through. Yes. Yes, unequivocally, you're in through Super Tuesday. (laughs) Absolutely. We have a country to save. Absolutely. Okay, Governor Nikki Haley, thank you so much for joining. (laughs) She couldn't sound any more nonplussed about talking to her. (laughs) Donald Trump beat Joe Biden by over 100,000 votes in Michigan. Ouch. In addition, and this is big. Because remember, Noah, it was funny in Nevada when Nikki Haley lost to none of the above. But the Democrats don't play games with their elections. You can pretty much agree that. There's all the things that they like to fuck around with in court, state laws, bringing lawsuits, this, that, and the other thing. When it comes to elections, nobody rigs them better than the Democrats. And they always have plan A, B, and C, no matter what. Anytime, anywhere. Over 100,000 people in Michigan voted for none of the above in the Democrat primary the other day against Joe Biden. There wasn't a, there wasn't a vote for an empty suit I option? Mean, Joe Biden did get his several hundred thousand votes, but listen, over 100,000 people got into their cars especially in rural areas, and drove to a voting center and voted for none of the above. That's, <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. I drove 45 minutes to get here, but all these people are disgusting, so no. But before we get to it being inside the numbers, which we definitely are going to, I, I do want to hear Nikki Haley cry about Donald Trump calling her bird brain. <laughs> Let's hear it. It says more about Donald Trump that he'll call the last remaining candidate bird brain or brain dead. It says more about Donald Trump that everybody thinks it's funny that he acts this way. 
I don't think the rest of the world thinks that's funny. I don't oh. think that our kids need to see someone who acts like that. Oh. I don't think our kids need to see us going. To- <laughs> At that point, she was like, Governor, Governor. Shut up. Governor. It was bad. And, you know, listen, Nikki Haley did this to herself. We talked about it. There's no reason for her to be in this race. Uh, she's already made her point of showing that she could run a national-level campaign. All she's doing right now is pulling around DeSantis and absolutely killing any chances she has of getting back in this party in 2028. The, the bad taste that she is going to leave in everybody's mouth is one that won't be forgotten by America First. And for all these things that we're seeing from, like, Ron DeSantis now wants to run his wife right after his term ends to be the next governor of Florida to him having 2028 aspirations, same thing goes for Nikki Haley. Absolutely fucking not. Their numbers will be so much worse in 2028 than they were now. And Ron DeSantis's were embarrassing. I mean, Nikki Haley's getting some decent-ish numbers only because there's nobody else. Is Ron DeSantis back to normal height now? 5'8"? No more lifts? We will never have a president that short anyway. So anyone who has any kind of wet dream that Ron DeSantis will ever be, number one, the Republican nominee, or two, the president of the United States, never is going to happen. The optics of that on the world stage are just, the world isn't ready for that. No short kings? Mm. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) We are going to get inside the numbers here. Michigan, white collar, affluent suburbs of Detroit. Donald Trump absolutely destroyed Nikki Haley. Let's check it out. Carolina. Now take it to Michigan last night. Where were, where are those areas on this map? I'll show you a big one right here. This is Oakland County. This by itself is like 15% of the vote statewide in this primary. And you can see here Donald Trump by nearly 30 points over Nikki Haley. This is of the two major northern suburbs of Detroit, suburban counties. You got Oakland County and you got Macomb County. Macomb County is the classic blue collar suburb built, you know, sort of by the UAW, by the auto workers. Uh, that has been in the general election and in primaries, Trump country. But Oakland County is the big white collar suburb, significant growth, higher incomes, higher levels of college degrees. Again, the exact kind of place where Nikki Haley was getting real good numbers in South Carolina and New Hampshire to bring her up to 40. She didn't do that last night here in Oakland County. This was one of her big opportunity counties. If she wanted to replicate those earlier performances, fell to just 33 percent here. I think even more striking for Haley, you look down in Washtenaw County. County, University of Michigan, Eastern Michigan, Michigan University, affluence, yeah, all these things I'm talking about that are her demographic wheelhouse. And she couldn't even win her here. This is her best county in the state, her absolute best county of Michigan's 83 counties is right here. She got 44-7 Carolina. And in case you were wondering, Donald Trump swept the entire state county-wise. So there was no, where she came within four points in one county, all of the rest were by extremely wide margins. Donald Trump was damn near 70% and she was floating around 30. So it's one of those things where when you don't see as many Democrats, like when they have to go vote for their own candidate on the same day, and instead of voting against Donald Trump, they vote for none of the above against Joe Biden. Ouch. Yeah. it, It really didn't fall into the plan that Nikki Haley has been using in some of these open primaries during the primary process right now. And I, I think the, Touching back on it right now, the the big wake-up call for the Democrats was that when you look in the state of Michigan, the numbers historically, the fact that Donald Trump smashed the primary record there for both sides of the aisle and his entire 
vote total exceeded Democrats, something you just don't normally see in this primary process. It's becoming very apparent that everybody hates Joe Biden. Think I'm joking? Let's check it out. That's what Joe Biden received. Again, forgive me, 1,141 votes. Dean Phillips, 54 votes. An uncommitted, make sure I get this right, 3,703 votes. So that's a wow. If you look at it this way, this is 23%. And this is 75%. Um, and so this is just the city of Dearborn, but that is where the biggest pocket of the Muslim American, the Arab American population. This is a place President Biden carried big time in 2020. This is key to his chances of defeating Donald Trump in Michigan again. 75% of one of the biggest Democrat strongholds in the state of Michigan voted for non-committed. And Joe Biden was able to get 23% of the Democrat vote there. Huge Arab Muslim population. Joe Biden's been catching a lot of heat for what's been going on between Israel and Palestine. And for all of these rallies, you're seeing the radical progressive Democrats get behind in the country. Joe Biden's just not with it. And I don't think he's going to be. It's, it's wild to watch them eat themselves, though. We've never seen, like in modern era, something like this before happen in real time. And it's, it's being in such a digital age. Well, we've been watching minuscule portions of it where their, their rhetoric and their goals and the things that they say end up contradicting themselves in like scientific ways or political ways or whatever, or just ideo ideological ways. But now it's like actually like all the way up to the presidency. It's not just some social justice warrior on Instagram. It's your president who's literally antagonizing his own base by doing things. It's wild. And, you know, they, they have a real problem right now uh, in the state of Michigan, in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, in all of the battleground swing states, you are seeing Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump across the board. And the fact of the matter is, is that Michigan showed out for Donald Trump. Over 750,000 votes total in the Michigan primary. Joe Biden was able to get only 600,000. And I've got one more clip on this before we jump over to some of the legal stuff. Let's hear it. Your reaction to what we saw happen in Michigan yesterday. Yeah, two key takeaways. Trump walked away with an astounding victory. This primary is over. Donald Trump is the clear nominee for the Republican Party. But I think the other big takeaway is the raw votes. If we look at what Donald Trump walked away with, he walked away with over 750,000 votes. We look at Biden's side, it's a little over 600,000. This tells me that Michigan is going full force for Donald Trump. And on top of that, if you look at the Democrat primary, if you add up all of the candidates, including the non-committed, it still does not add up to the amount of do votes Donald Trump won. So I think this is a huge wake-up call for Biden. I think they're going to have to really do some re-strategizing here. And again, this is a huge victory for Donald Trump. Yeah, David. But because he didn't get 80% of the overall votes on the Republican side, it wasn't a big win according to the Mainstream media for Donald Trump, which is just absolutely ludicrous. Another historic victory for him in Michigan, looking to parlay that into a big weekend. Michigan, Montana, and Idaho all have caucuses. Let's scoop up all those delegates and keep it rolling for 45 as he's looking to make it 47. What do you think, Noah? 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's get this going. Oof. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadios, please make sure you're subscribed, following, and that it's downloading to your electronic device. In addition, find us on social media, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram is where you'll find our accounts. Follow them, hit the notification bell, never miss out on anything, our weekly newsletter, great guests, or awesome commentary here on Steak for Breakfast. All right, we're going to segue a little bit, talk about some of the legal meltdowns we're seeing in the mainstream media right now in regards to Donald Trump. Noah's favorite, gender curious. Oh, come on. Flat topped. Totally serious news commentator, Randy Maddow, <laughs> was calling the Supreme Court's decision to hear Donald Trump's immunity case bullshit and said that the court needs to decide on something because it's unclear that Donald Trump is in flagrant violation of the law and that he is forever an insurrectionist. We're going to hear rulings on this presidential immunity on the viability of Donald Trump remaining on these ballots. I don't know if you heard, Noah. Yesterday, Illinois removed Donald Trump from their ballot for the primary. However, have stated per the Supreme Court ruling, I believe Illinois' primary is on the 19th of March. So we're running up against a hard deadline here. But before we get too off track, let's hear Randy Maddow. Is really presidential immunity an open question? Because what's the most famous pardon in American history? Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon once he had resigned and was a former president. Why did Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon? Quote, as a result of certain acts or omissions occurring before his resignation as president, meaning as a result of stuff he did while president, quote, Richard Nixon has become liable to possible indictment and trial. Right. Whether or not he shall be so prosecuted depends on findings of the appropriate grand jury and the discretion of the authorized prosecutor. So the idea that this is an open question, that it might be that a former president can never be tried for something that he did because he was president when he did it, is disproven by a plain reading of American history and the whole justification for Richard Nixon being pardoned in the first place. So the idea that this has to be taken up is them saying the sky is you green. You hear her? Right. And I think yeah. even for the non-lawyers among us to be able to say, you know what? The sky is not green even on our worst day. Oh. This is BS. You are doing this as a dilatory tactic to help your political uh, your political friend, your partisan patron. And for, for you to say that this is something that the court needs to decide because it's something that's unclear in the law is just flagrant, flagrant bullpucky. And they know it, oh, and they don't oh, care oh. that we know it, and that's disturbing about the future oh. legitimacy of the Scissor court. Scissor me, Tambor! Is- wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. I think we were both taken back by that. But believe it or not, that wasn't the best one. You know, she had a uh, panel of guests there. You wouldn't have known it from how she was hyperventilating, but at some point they did get to come in and add their commentary, and I'm looking at this guy right now, um, Ellie Mistel. Just an absolute abomination of a human being. Wanted to. Who the hell's Ellie Mistel? Well, Ellie Mistel is the person who we're going to hear the meltdown from next, as this is going to be our last clip before we jump in with the New York Young Republican Club president, Gavin Wax. You ready for this one? Buckle yeah. up, buckaroos. And you ready to laugh again? reason why people like Mark and people like Dahlia seem to have a crystal ball is because oh. they're real because they're realists and they understand the court they're for real. what it is. And at some point, people in the media, people at home, and people sitting in the White House have to stop pretending that the Supreme Court is some kind of benign, trying to do its best institution and start to realize that there are six 
Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans on the Supreme Court who view it as their job to help the Republican Party. And until we do something about that, until we take away that power, until we draw the line on them there, they will continue to do this. They will help Trump. They will take away abortion rights. They will end affirmative action. They will liberalize gun rights. They will do all of it until we stop them. And you are a nasty person. You know that meme where it's like, Daddy, chill, and the guy's like, what the hell is even that? Yeah. That's the vibe I get from watching this guy just foaming at the mouth and just being an absolute complete idiot talking about. And remember, we told you guys this a year ago when all of these indictments were supposedly coming down and before Donald Trump even got fingerprinted for the first time, we were going to say they were going to use the balance of power in the Supreme Court right now to delegitimize their rulings and push for packing the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And you could already tell that narrative starting to ramp up as all of these cases are complete bullshit and look like if they're not going to start before the election, they're going to get thrown out in totality. Mm-hmm. So get ready for the continuing fall of the Republic as we uh, try to hold on the best we can. We're going to see if we can't talk about that a little bit more with the New York Young Republican Club president, Gavin Wax. But before we do, Let's hear from one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Battleborn Coffee Roasters. They're law enforcement, family-owned, and they produce some of the best available specialty-grade coffee. That means all those beans have gone through an extensive process to remove all defects. Battleborn researches all their sources, farms, and milling stations to make sure you're not getting any pesticides or chemical fertilizers. Sit back and have a cup of their Borderline Mexico Chiapas blend while you're out sitting on an X or sitting in the office. High-quality coffee from high-quality people. Use promo code STEAK for 20% off your first order. Make sure you go check them out at battleborn.coffee. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's the executive director at the NCLU. He's also the president of the New York Young Republican Club. Mr. Gavin Wax, welcome back to the show. Great to be back on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to host my friend. And uh, it's pretty busy. You know, we were going to start off touching on some national issues of, of big importance to America first. But I saw the New York Young Republican Club was a little bit active yesterday in New York City. And uh, they have a major concern and are trying to bring some awareness on the ongoing migrant crisis you have pretty much destroying New York as of right now. You want to tell our listenership a little bit about that? Absolutely. We, uh, we threw a press conference today outside the Roosevelt Hotel, which is the uh, notorious hotel that the city uh, and state is housing uh, these illegal aliens at. It's become basically a, uh, a drug den. It's been, you know, a focal point of crime and unrest and just kind of the, the visual of the Democrats and their failed policy as it relates to this, you know, border invasion. So we were, uh, you know, hosting this uh, this presser with some state senate candidates and some other local activists in conjunction uh, with uh, President Trump's visit uh, to the border today to Eagle Pass. Uh, you know, trying to bring some uh, shed some light on what's happening here in 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 the Empire State here in the Big Apple, which is in many ways it's become a border. Uh, a border city. I mean, it's not at the border, but, you know, all cities, all towns, all counties, all states under the Biden regime have become border cities, border towns, border counties and border states, regardless of where they're located. That's just how bad the crisis is. And of course, you got Joe Biden, you know, chasing Trump's coattails down to the border. Uh, You know, his second visit, I think, since he's taken office while he's presided over this 
massive, unprecedented invasion of our country. So the situation in New York specifically, it's it's pushing our social safety net to the brink. We've seen a massive uptick in crime. You know, every week there's a new story about some violent offender being an illegal alien of some sort. Uh, we're seeing riots. We're seeing police being attacked. And now we're seeing more of our tax dollars being wasted yep. to house people that shouldn't be here to begin with. They're shutting down schools to house migrants. They're giving out $10,000 of free money. I mean, the whole thing is just spitting on the face of law-abiding American citizens and uplifting the illegal alien uh, to a pedestal that they don't deserve to be on. It's wild to see what's going on in New York City and across the country right now. The the migrant crimes, as Donald Trump recently put it, are on definitely on an uptick in everything from, like you had mentioned, to police assaults. There's been some sexual assaults, children, and, and even students like down in the University of, of Georgia who were recently murdered uh, at the hands of illegals, people that... In some cases, Donald Trump removed during his presidency and were allowed to come in under fake asylum guys under the Biden regime. And it's just really sad to see the state of the nature of our country. Uh, you see a lot of repression in the mainstream media kind of carrying the water for the regime as well and saying it's not a thing, as do members of Congress. I saw Representative Crockett yesterday after the Hunter Biden deposition, uh, you know, touch on that as being a wish hunt and then parlayed it into the, you know, she thinks it's like theatrics that Republicans are trying to use to bring awareness to the border. Uh, Joe Biden, Alejandro Mayorkas and KGP's rhetoric on it as well. And, and, you know, it's like a tale of two eras where under Donald Trump's administration, uh, the, the amount of people that you know, were able to be deported or refused at the border were at all-time lows, and the only reason that was is because we had things like Remain in Mexico policy, and when we see Joe Biden erase that via executive order on day one, well, there was close to 4 million people waiting in Mexico, and that was just the start of probably close to 15 million that we've been able to allow in over the course of the last three-plus years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the numbers are completely out of control. I mean, it's 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 not just any migration wave. I mean, this is an invasion by any other name, by any other uh, description. I mean, it's designed to replace the American citizen and most importantly, the American voter. Uh, that's all this is. And it's also, co you know, consequently bringing crime, bringing drugs, suppressing our wages, creating, you know, national disunity, cultural disunity. I mean, this is this is un. Believable what's happening and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on you should recognize this for what it is and i, I repeat it is an invasion uh, it needs to be treated as such and we do need mass deportations and i think we need mass denaturalizations because many of these people are gaining citizenship when they really shouldn't just by virtue of being born on the right side of the fence despite Correct. the fact that they came over their parents came over here illegally so we need massive reform we need massive deportations we need to finish building the wall we need to return to it all the Trump policies and more that were enacted during his first term, which led to some of the, uh, you know, the highest rates of deportation and and uh, some of the lowest border crossings in recent history. Uh, we need to return to that. And uh, it can be done if there's uh, the political will. And I believe the will of the American people is behind it. Now we simply need to find uh, the courage and the backbone from our uh, elected swamp rats known as uh, the Republicans in the Senate or the House to do their job, uh, hopefully next year when we have uh, President Trump return to the White House where he belongs. I can't agree with you more. And, you know, you want to talk about stuff that's going on down at the club. One of the things that Donald Trump has received from the New York Republican Club, you know, throughout his presidency and in, in his candidacy to retake the White House is your guys unwavering support. Now, we've got a date coming up here. It's after Super Tuesday, probably a little further down the road than when he should cross the threshold with the enough delegates to become the Republican nominee. We're thinking it's about March 12th-ish, but that's going to be on March 25th, and that's when Donald Trump's going to be back in court 
forced off the campaign trail in a you know, clear example of election interference in the Stormy Daniels case. Uh, does the New York Young Republican Club plan on supporting him in ways that they have throughout the course of the, the most recent trials that he's had there in the city? We're going to continue to uh, show up and rally and show support for uh, our president, our hometown hero, uh, as he faces these ridiculous witch hunts and, and persecutions across the country, but also here in New York, where uh, he is the victim of both a uh, ridiculous criminal prosecution and a, ridic- and a ridiculous uh, civil uh, case against him and his business, the Trump Organization. Uh, what we're seeing happening in this country is really uh, unheard of, these Soviet-esque uh, show trials where these radical left-wing judges and prosecutors, in the example of the civil the civil case, uh, you know, are, are you know trying to fine him over four hundred million dollars and counting and growing every day. Uh, you know, I don't understand how this doesn't violate uh, you know the Eighth Amendment, you know, protection against these sorts of things uh, from happening. It just goes to show that the entire system is being twisted and uh, and manipulated to advance a left-wing radical agenda. And the first target. Uh, of this new system of American so-called justice is President Donald J. Trump. And again, he says it best when he says that they're coming after him first. They're coming after him to come after the rest of us. Uh, if we let this happen to him, the leader of the opposition, uh, the front runner for the presidency, a former president, uh, they could do it to any Joe Schmo. They could bankrupt anyone. They can imprison anyone. They can silence anyone for wrong think and and, and uh, going against the grain. I mean, this is not the America, uh, the country that you or I grew up in. This is not the country we were promised. This is a country that's you know, veering down a very dark path and for all their cries of fascism, the the American left attacking everyone, you know, subtly to the right of Ruth Bader Ginsburg of being a fascist. They are the biggest fascists of them all. They're using the entire full weight of uh, of government and all its related institutions to go after their political opposition uh, without any remorse, without any mercy. Uh, you know, if anyone is a modern day American fascist, it's the American left and it's the Democrat Party uh, and the DNC. Unfortunately, we need to find uh, some Republicans that are willing to fight back with the same amount of uh, vigor and ruthlessness. Uh, President Trump is doing his best. He's doing all he can, but he's only one man. And it'd be nice if he had much more support behind him uh, in the form of the Republican Party and their elected leadership. No, it, it's it's very accurate what you said there. And the amount of support that entities like the club, obviously the NCLU, have lended towards Donald Trump throughout the course of his time out of office looking to get back. It's unparalleled. It's uh, trailblazing, in my opinion, as far as the way things should be in, in regards to supporting people like Donald Trump politically moving forward. And it also should, as you alluded to, Gavin, urge these other people from our side of the aisle to stop, you know, either dipping their toes in MAGA or, you know, waiting till the last available minute to get behind someone like Donald Trump again. I mean, I think we've seen a lot more people in a quicker manner get behind him as he's still yet not going to be the nominee for a few weeks. But there are a lot of people out there who should just get behind Donald Trump just for the fact that we've lived under Joe Biden's brutal, radical, progressive, globalist policies for the last three plus years. And look what it's done to our country just outside of the immigration system. You want to talk about the economy, geopolitics, you name it, it's completely destroyed because of Joe Biden and the uh, cast of Obama retreads he's brought back with him. And uh, if we don't get our Oh, I'm going to put it frankly, shit in order. By the time we head to the ballot box in November, I don't know if our country could survive another four years of this. 
Uh, I agree. I think, you know, they're doing everything they can uh, to expedite the downfall and uh, the decline of our country in the broader Western world. I mean, uh, our elite, the uni party elite in, in D.C. or in Brussels or wherever in the world uh, are orchestrating this this global decline and stagnation of all of these Western countries and particularly the United States. And globalization has done its number uh, on, on, on this country. It's gutted us. Uh, economically, spiritually, and culturally, and it's left uh, a rotting corpse in its wake. And, uh, you know, we can revive it. We can bring about an American national renewal, but we need the right leadership. And I believe that that, that leadership comes in the form of President Donald J. Trump and his Make America Great Again uh, agenda, which achieved uh, massive successes in terms of advancing our prosperity, advancing world peace during his short four-year term, where he was under uh, massive, massive pressure uh, from the deep state, from his opponents, uh, who were trying everything they can to sabotage him uh, and his ability to effectuate uh, his electoral mandate. But I think uh, he's never looked better. He's never looked to be in a stronger position electorally, given the recent polls, both national polls, which are polling the national popular vote, and the state-level polls and polls of various different demographic cohorts. Uh, you know, not just the best polls that he has had uh, as a candidate, either in 16 or 20, but frankly, the best polls any Republican contender for the presidency Correct. has had for the better part of three decades. I don't think we've seen anyone uh, in recent memory uh, as a Republican running a, a on the on the presidential ticket poll this well i mean he really is our best shot uh to not only retake the white house but really cement a trifecta uh, Republican governance back in D.C., which we're going to need. Uh, we're going to need to pass a lot of bills. We're going to need oh, to yeah. repeal a lot more bills. And I hope uh, I hope this all comes to fruition uh, come November and we can get to work, uh, you know, late January uh, of turning this country around and undoing the absolute disaster uh, that this Biden regime has uh, wrecked on the American people. I could agree with you more, and I'm going to keep it in the Empire State. I do want to talk to you about some big developments we've had there congressionally over the course of the last week. It seems like we've got some new maps drawn in regards to uh, things that could help keep the House of Representatives, which a lot of people were wary about, I'll be honest, you know, going into the redistricting that's been going on. But, you know, I see more and more people online kind of alluding to the fact that uh, it looks like this is going to be okay and might actually be contributing to the equation that's going to help Republicans keep the House in November. Yeah, listen, I think uh, ultimately with uh, these maps in New York, we uh, we were saved by the bell, so to speak. I mean, it looks like the maps are going to be generally fair to Republicans. Uh, you know, a lot of these maps are based on uh, the PVI uh, figure, which in many ways is flawed because it factors in the 2020 results, uh, which were not exactly uh, traditional electoral results. That was a very unusual year electorally. And I think uh, if you look at PVI numbers, I think they're skewed towards the the Dems' favor. But even with these maps, the PVI looks great for Republicans. I mean, if you look at the maps overlaid with uh, Lee Zeldin's gubernatorial results, uh, there's even more padding there for Republicans. So I think uh, in many ways, uh, the uh, House, the, the path uh, to House uh, control still runs through New York, thankfully, and uh, we have the ability to maintain control of the House. And depending on how the results go with President Trump at the top of the ticket, I believe we can even expand uh, our, our percentage in the House of Representatives. And I think the Senate is uh, even more likely to go our way in a big way. So hopefully we get these majorities, but more importantly, uh, hopefully we use these majorities effectively uh, and we don't simply send uh, the typical milk toast, uh, feckless type of candidates 
and types of uh, elected officials to D.C. that just want to carry on with business as usual, who lack any sort of vision, who lack any sort of drive uh, to fix this country. Uh, this is a time for people to recognize uh, that we need to step up to the plate if we're really going to save this country for ourselves and our uh, and our descendants. And uh, if we want to do that, we're going to really need uh, real leadership. Uh, a real backbone and a real spine uh, because the swamp is not a uh, not a nice place and it eats people up, it chews them alive and spits them out like it's nothing. Uh, so hopefully we're sending our best uh, both from New York and across the rest of the country in terms of uh, our GOP delegations. Well, with the changes in leadership too, both in the House of Representatives, what it potentially could be in the next session of Congress and now Mitch McConnell's big announcement this week, I think the only way we can end this segment, Gavin, is talking about the massive success Donald Trump has had on the campaign trail, especially throughout the course of the last two primaries, Nevada and South Carolina. Historic numbers, breaking previously held standards, uh, double or tripling his 2016 outputs in, in some of these states. And you know, it's like if Donald Trump can't get 50%, the media hits him. If he can't get 60%, now it's if he can't get 70% of the electorate. And some of these primaries which are open and Democrats are actively involved in voting in, it's like just absolutely ridiculous that they're not going to acknowledge the national revival that's going on and getting behind Donald Trump. In an uncontested primary, and I'm saying that even with Nikki Haley still remaining in the race because she's just a non-factor, you usually have historically low turnouts, as the Democrats are seeing now with Joe Biden, people either not going out, reluctantly voting for him, or voting for, you know, someone other than Joe Biden. We saw it pretty historic numbers in Michigan the other day where over 100,000 people did. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is just continuing to raise his numbers, continuing to raise his support, and he should be completely undefeated by the end of this primary season, something that a non-incumbent incumbent has never done before in the history of presidential politics. I mean, I know you guys track this very heavily, huge endorsers of the president for all three of his candidacies, and to see the way that he's methodically not only had everybody exit the race, but an overwhelming majority of them have gotten behind him and are now supporting him at the national level. How incredible is this that, you know, some people are just watching this time period of our lives idly go by while you're seeing like the greatest political icon probably in the history of our country or at least since the founding fathers times like Donald Trump is do what he's doing right now and trying to save this country. Listen, I think you bring up a lot of great points here. I think the goalposts have constantly moved. I mean, the numbers that President Trump has been securing uh, in states like New Hampshire and South Carolina, New Hampshire with an electorate, an open primary, uh, where generally speaking, it's it's far less favorable to him. And then in, in South Carolina, obviously the home state of his opponent, again, an open primary. And he's still racking up these massive victories, these massive leads, these massive margins. You know, Michigan, just another example of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, everyone is trying to find a way to splice and dice this, but the reality is, is that he is a juggernaut on this primary in this primary race. Uh, he is the undisputed leader of the party. No one has been able uh, to win the kind of victories he has been winning in a uh, in a primary where so much donor money, particularly Democrat money, has been spent to try to oust him. I'm not talking about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. I mean, their biggest backers and donors were people that wanted to see the Republican Party divided, that wanted to see President Trump distracted, that wanted to do everything they could to make his life more difficult and make MAGA weaker going into the general election. But frankly speaking, those those efforts have been for naught. They've been uh, defeated and vanquished by President Trump, and he's going to continue to wipe uh, the, the map clean in terms of victories one after another. And this was something that people like myself and others have predicted uh, going back months that he was going to win every contest. He was going to win every state. And this is just a delaying action uh, to, to fend off the inevitable. And the inevitable is going to be that he is going to be the official 
GOP nominee uh, in November. And he's he's having victories across the board. He's having victories in his legal fights. Uh, now with SCOTUS taking up the uh, the uh, certiorari before judgment. Now he's having the victories, obviously, in the primary. He's having victories in terms of his polling. I mean, the man keeps collecting W's, yet people keep trying to find ways to spin it and act like, oh, this is really not all that it seems. He's actually more vulnerable. He's actually more weak. You just have to laugh these people off. They're jokers. They're grifters. They're not serious individuals. President Trump is a dominant force. Uh, he's going to remain as such. And listen, I, I, I have no problem predicting right now he's going to be our next president. Uh, based on the way things are heading and going, barring some massive event or some massive news uh, that could shift the entire landscape. But uh, right now I feel confident, but we have to still play like we're 10 points behind and keep fighting uh, for the end result, which is uh, his uh, glorious return uh, to the Oval Office. It's the truth. You know, we've heard the exact same rhetoric from the Trump team. We try to promote it and push it out on our show as much as possible. And then when we bring on the guests who we feel are qualified to weigh in on these things, Gavin, like yourself obviously is, you're down at ground zero of everything MAGA. We just kind of put it all together and say, hey, listen, you could hear a lot of different things from other places, but when you're hearing it from the absolute source, at the end of the day, it becomes the choice to listen. This has been awesome catching up with you today, covering a large group of topics for our listenership to kind of digest. We're going to be live linking everything, the club, the National Constitutional Law Union, obviously a link to your book in our show description today. Anybody that wants to follow you on social media, where can they check you out? Uh, you can follow me at Gavin Wax, G-A-V-I-N-W-A-X. That's on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all social media. And please check out and get a copy of my book, The Emerging Populist Majority, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Uh, and uh, thank you again for having me on. It's always great to be with you. Uh, I loved and enjoyed my copy of the book, Gavin. Next time I see you, we're going to, of course, obviously get it signed for Steak for Breakfast. But uh, more importantly, we'll be looking to have you back soon as you are one of our frequent and favorite guests here on the show. This is the president of the New York Young Republican Club, Mr. Gavin Wax. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. You as well, sir. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. All right, jumping back into the news here. Always great catching up with Gavin Wax, our last news segment. Of the week here on Steak for Breakfast, second of two shows. Noah? Yeah? What, what's the next uh, chapter? The coffin? <laughs> I'd like to announce that. I'm not going to be going anywhere except into the ground. <laughs> Who will be the next Werther's original <laughs> official spokesperson now that Mitch McConnell has decided to step down from his leadership position? Um, he alluded to the fact that he's going to finish out his term in the Senate, which runs through Election Day 2026. However. I mean, it is good we're not going to lose one more Republican. To be continued. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know what? I love taking the opportunity to absolutely destroy them. Not that he's really a Republican, but, you know, exactly. in name. Whenever I can. The entire ensemble of Rizless, the Ruthless podcast, joined Dana Bash for a, 
I don't know, Rizless exclusive interview because they all are former Mitch McConnell staffers, all four of them. And it was one of the, okay, it's like two different clips. They're on our social media. We hammered them pretty hard. About four minutes in of the first seven-minute clips, I was developing stage four cancer and full-blown AIDS at the same time. Oh, ear cancer? And by the time I got done listening to the second clip, I wanted to walk out of my house and into oncoming traffic. You're going to see a lot of people try to glorify the job that Mitch McConnell has done over the course of his career. And listen, last week on social media, in his first term as a junior senator, there's a clip going around of Mitch McConnell talking about voter fraud in the state of Kentucky. And it's it, listen, if you took Mitch McConnell and AI Donald Trump's voice into exactly what he says, it sounded exactly like Donald Trump after the 2020 presidential election. Right. Everything from absentee ballots and mail-in votes are straight up fraud to Democrats like stuffing ballot boxes and changing voter registrations in the primaries. It's wild. Give credit where credit is due. Three Supreme Court justices during Donald Trump's first term. 2020 was the first year, I believe, in four decades where we didn't have one bench empty at the federal court level because he was appointing everybody. But if you just look at the job he's done since Joe Biden took office, and I'll sum it up as best I can, he's voted 100% of the time with Chuck Schumer, and we've passed the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Non-Reduction Act in exchange for a bridge which Mitch McConnell got in his state. Period. End of story. So regardless of how good he was for his 40 years in the Senate and decades in leadership, he ends on a very milk toast note, to say the least. Hmm. I have heard also from very reliable sources, because as you have noticed, we've played a couple of clips of it on the show. Mitch McConnell has wanted to kind of stay away from the taboo subjects like border security because he feels that Donald Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee and he wants to at least stay out of the way of the incoming border security that we might see as early as next year. And that people between the McConnell and Trump camps are even possibly working on an endorsement for this election cycle. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. And now we get to introduce our listenership to the three Johns. The three people who are more than likely to be the candidates to replace Mitch McConnell in the Senate leadership. John Cornyn, never Trumper, recently endorsed Donald Trump like two weeks ago after everybody and their mother did. He's a Mitch McConnell lackey, has been for a long time. Mitch McConnell's number two, the Senate minority whip, John Thune. And then John Barrasso, who's, he's like a five and a half out of ten when it comes to MAGA. I mean, he has been going out publicly and like doing events with people like Carrie Lake and Bernie Moreno in an attempt to flip the Senate for the Republicans. But I don't really like any of the three of them. I know you don't either, Noah, especially when you talk about Cornyn and Thune. Yeah, no. They might as well be Mitch McConnell staffers because that's what they've acted at. Their office staff and Senate staff all commingled together. No one's allowed to say anything without getting approval from the big guy, not the 10% one, the Werther's original one. And it's going to be interesting to see if we can get any of these America First candidates. I know Donald Trump Jr. and maybe Sr. is, is kind of keen to Steve Daines, who's uh, in charge of... Senate re-elections, maybe jumping in for... But, I mean, you have so many other great options. Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Rick Scott, 
Marco Rubio, who would be at the bottom of that rung. The junior senators that we all like, J.D. Vance, Tommy Tuberville, they're not going to be eligible for Senate leadership yet, as they'll only be in their sophomore session after their next term. So it's going to be interesting to see how this shook out. I've got one more clip from Mitch McConnell. My apologies, but (laughs) we'll just take it as we're appreciative of the three Supreme Court justices he helped get confirmed in addition to keeping the benches staffed in 2020. Let's hear him. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. (laughs) I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. Mm. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived. Today, you know, <laughs> the start of that where he talks about being it's out of step. Said sun setting. <laughs> Close enough. I'm still alive. Be <laughs> quiet. You're waking the neighbors. What are you doing? I'm burying you. When, when he first let in there and talked about how he is now out of step with Republican politics, this is a lot of what we're seeing with the old guard. No, there's no way that you would have thought when this session of Congress was sworn in that Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, and Ronna McDaniel would all be gone in a span of five months. No. Zero percent. In addition, Pierre Delecto, Mitt Romney's out. Ken Buck's out. Kay Granger's out. You see all of these people just... Time to abandon ship. (laughs) Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be real bad for us if we stick around for this, just in case. I do feel like in a lot of different contexts, we have laid the groundwork for better days to come. But if you go back to our first interview today in our first edition of the show with Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett, he said a lot of people get either high and mighty or just forget about how important it is to vote for people outside of the president when they go to the ballot box when it's a presidential election season. Retaining the House of Representatives and flipping the Senate are equally as important to Donald Trump winning the presidency. Mm -hmm. There is no Agenda 47. There is no border security. There is more than likely World War III, and this country will no longer exist if we don't get all three. I see a lot of pieces falling into place right now, both within and outside of the Hill that are showing me that generational change is coming. We told you we've asked congressmen and women who have come on the show senators. Tell us about the growing pains. It's like one of the hardest things they always have to answer for us, but they always talk about how it's annoying. The uniparty is strong, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think when Mitch McConnell 
alluded to that light in his speaking event. He's talking about the white light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go on the light yet. But we're talking about making America great again here. So for as frustrating as it's been, think about the small victories and how eventually enough of those contribute to a big win. That's all I could say on it. That's my advice to you, the listener. And think about how important it is going out and representing America first in these primaries and then getting your ass and everybody you know to the ballot box in November to vote for Donald Trump and the America first congressmen and women and senators who are going to help make those changes next year and get this country going again. I am going to kind of switch gears and go through just about everything that we saw. There was a lot of big headlines yesterday. Hunter Biden gave his closed door deposition. No, how do you feel that went down for the big guy? Now that we know who he is, Hunter Biden confirmed it was Joe Biden. However, stuck to the fact that he was never included in his business dealings. Yeah, I, I don't believe that at all. And, and you heard how he framed it, right? Okay, so I'm meeting with these Chinese business entities, these Ukrainian or Chinese or Romanian business entities. We're going out to these fancy swank restaurants. We're playing a, a full round of golf. We're, we're going on resorts for the weekend. And I just decided to invite my dad because he's my dad. Like, you never wanted to do that? Like, hey, I'm going to a fancy restaurant. I'd like to treat my dad. So I'm going to bring my dad because he's my father. That's literally how he framed it. And anytime House Republicans challenged him with something that made him look smart, he's like, well, of course. I'm a businessman. I'm a former lawyer. I was a Navy officer. And then anytime something really looked bad, well, I was an addict struggling with addiction. And you don't know what that's like. It was very weird to see... And to start, I've gotten through a pretty decent portion of the better parts of the deposition transcript, which was released yesterday. But, I mean, I don't think we're going to see Hunter Biden in a public hearing now because of how much he answered. And he never invoked the Fifth Amendment. Do you think that's weird? Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that would be step one for every time he opened his fucking mouth. One, two, three, four, five. (laughs) Christina Bob loves that. (laughs) You know, and it was, it was heard that Matt Gates was most frustrated with what went on during that deposition, having heated exchanges with both Hunter Biden and his legal team. Although they weren't really permitted to talk about what went on during the closed-door deposition, Matt Gates couldn't hold himself back when he walked past the gaggle coming out of the, the hearing hall. Let's hear it. I'd say that there were a number of interesting moments, but perhaps none more interesting than when Hunter Biden told us that he uh, joined the Burisma board to counter Russian aggression. (laughs) I I hadn't heard that one before, that thank goodness we had Hunter Biden on the Burisma board uh, because that was uh, central to his strategy to stand up to Vladimir Putin. Has he taken the fifth at all? No, he's he's been responsive to questions. Has he told you exactly what value he brought to any of these wars, any of these companies yet? Have you guys asked him that? Yeah, we've asked those questions and there there is an illusory value. It is a mirage to believe that Hunter Biden was engaged in international business. This was uh, a bribe masquerading as an international business transaction. Nothing more, nothing less. Can we just quickly ask you, do you still feel the impeachment inquiry is heading in a direction where you'll actually be able to vote on articles of impeachment? Well, here we're asking questions about these corrupt business practices. Uh, I'm not really I'm not really framing that through the lens of next steps. I'm just trying to get the facts. I, I, uh, 
I, I have to say, I thought it was a fire alarm. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty strange uh, statement. Either perhaps it jumps off the page when he says it in his own words. Do you think the, has he said anything that specifically implicate the president? Have you seen evidence that the president was involved in those business dealings yet? I believe that you can actually bribe someone by paying their family members. Like I, I don't get this construct that this unless Joe Biden himself received cash that he somehow wasn't involved in the bribery operation. Joe Biden was doing the bidding of. Burisma. He was doing the bidding of Chinese communists, and his family was getting enriched as a consequence. To me, that's a pretty strong case for bribery. Really quickly, I'm sure you've heard the news about Mitch McConnell. Any reaction? So, and you know, one of the things that they uh, I saw maybe a little bit later on the news that night was it, it was about the, the money. You know, they have this whole chart where there's like 20 some odd members of the Biden family receiving ridiculous amounts of cash in the form of, like, loan repayments and stuff. And I guess some of the commentary that's come out of that deposition, Noah, was that Hunter Biden hired his own family members as consultants, and that was compensation for their consultory. There's a lot of compensation going around in that whole fucking window of operations. And it also looks like for tax purposes, let's just say you hit up Biden family member A, you would see cash being deposited into newly created accounts for their kids and their kids' kids. So you could kind of structure the money and not have to make payments on taxes for it, which is one of the things that, uh, again, Tim Birch had alluded to. He sat in the deposition. He said he was about 10 feet away from Hunter Biden. And uh, I'm pretty sure he wanted to choke slam him the entire time mm-hmm. or bayonet him. Whichever is more applicable. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, last call. Make sure you subscribe to the Steak for Breakfast podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio. We prefer Apple Podcast. Helps us out in the top 100. Massages the algorithms. Makes us more present in suggestions as well. In addition, find us on social media. Twitter, get our true social. Follow the accounts. Hit the notification bell. Never miss out on any of the great stuff we've got going on here on the show. So Matt Gates wasn't done. He had, he had a busy Wednesday, Thursday. No, I know you're pretty much in tune with all of the hearings going on this week and saw that disgraced Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin came begging for forgiveness from Congress hmm. for going AWOL during the Christmas portion of last year for three days, not using the chain of command to decouple and recouple the chain of succession in regards to SecDef and not communicating with the White House for over 72 hours on his status as he was taken from his home by ambulance to the hospital. If if somebody on Trump's team did that, or Trump's uh, cabinet? Treason. Oh, treason, uh, dragged through the streets, drawn and quartered, tarring and feathering, the whole deal. Fire up the guillotines? Yeah. Mm. It was pretty interesting to see some of the back and forths. One of the best ones I saw is when Lloyd Austin was challenged with America's national security and strategic readiness under the previous administration, it seemed like America was a lot safer. I'm pretty sure you could agree with that too, Noah, right? Yeah. Let's hear it. 18 months prior to this administration coming to office in in January of 2021, how many American lives did we lose in Afghanistan? I'm sorry? Prior to Joe Biden becoming president. Yeah, I'm sorry too. Prior 18 months, how many (laughs) Americans did we lose 
in Afghanistan? How many military service members? Uh, very few. I'd have to go back and check the record. I think it's exactly zero. The answer is zero. And then we lost 13 lives under uh, this administration's watch. 5,000 prisoners broke out of Bagram. We left billions of dollars worth of equipment. The Oof. Afghan army disintegrated within two weeks. And General McKenzie, uh, General Milley, and I believe yourself as well, when we had a discussion in 2021, could not guarantee me or the American people that any of those 5,000 scumbags that did escape from Bagram weren't involved in the murder of the 13 service members that occurred under uh, your watch. And why didn't we maybe have a withdrawal when it wasn't prime fighting season? I mean, all these questions, uh, they, they, this, I think, in large measure, could have been avoided. And then uh, just a little uh, walk through history here in the last couple of administrations. Uh, Vladimir Putin, a lot of my colleagues have talked about Ukraine. In 2008, Vladimir Putin stole uh, a province from Georgia, and it was under George W. Bush's watch. And then 2014, he stole all of Crimea under uh, Barack Obama's watch. And then a Russian-supported insurgency in eastern Ukraine kicked off as well. And then, uh, Mr. Secretary, President of the United States from 2017 to 2021 was? Say his name. Are you aware who that was? Say his name. Uh, 2013? 17 to 21. Who was the President of the United it's, States? Of course, it was, uh, it was uh, President Trump. Donald oh. Trump. Yeah. Did, were there any new, did Vladimir Putin embark on any new foreign adventures in those four years? Sure didn't. Uh, he didn't, uh, but... Okay, thank uh, you. And then, uh, and then February 2022, what happened? You know, he certainly, <laughs> I mean, that's when he attacked uh, Ukraine and... Full-scale invasion. Mm. Almost 200,000 regular Absolutely. Russian yeah. troops. So I think that if we were more concerned with our military... Uh, projecting power and not worried about personal pronouns, Ooh. it would be better for the American people and, quite frankly, the free world. Thank you, Mr. Hey. Chairman. I yield back. Hey, you like that one, Noah? <laughs> Got him. Now, there were dunkings like that one, but I think the, the realest one here was, and I already touched on it, Matt Gates wasn't done with his cross-examination of the absolute retards who are in charge of our government right now. And it's really unfortunate to have to say that, but when you look at the arrogant, elitist nature of people like Lloyd Austin, I mean, Noah, this guy literally gave himself a four-star rating in regards to the Afghanistan withdrawal. They said you there was, do, they said there was nothing wrong with it. Four-star rating. Sure, they said there was nothing wrong with it, and they said if they had to do it again, they'd do it the exact same way. I guess that includes the thirteen servicemen and women who died at Abbey Gate probably at the hands of those 5,000 criminals who escaped from the jail at Bagram Air Force Base. I don't think there's a single military commentator who knows what the fuck they're doing that thinks that the Afghanistan withdrawal was done well. No. But all the people that continue to get promoted and uh, moved up the chains because of their pronouns or how tight the guy's dresses fit would have something to say about that. And, you know, now they're doing a huge investigation into the money that's gone into Ukraine. It seems that the Department of Defense has had some major issues with up to $100 million of cash aid funding and military equipment that's gone over to the embattled Eastern European nation since the start of the minor incursion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's all being laundered. It's probably back here already. Well, here's the latest from today. The Pentagon is investing over 50 cases of theft, fraud, and corruption linked to Ukraine aid following a new report from the Inspector General's Office of the Pentagon that revealed the U.S. authorities could not account for more than now $1 billion 
worth of American aid, cash, funding, and military equipment that has been dispatched to the nation of Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, when you send money and cash and equipment to one of the most corrupt countries in the world, known for what? Illicit trading of uh, military equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good call. Yeah. Well, I would say the back and forth between Matt Gates and Lloyd Austin was nothing short of epic, and it just was able to put one of these elitist assholes out on display for the whole world to see how smug they are, how little respect they have for the job that they're supposed to be doing for the American people, and how absolutely broken our United States military is. Let's hear it. You didn't tell the president that you had cancer, that you were being treated for cancer, or that the treatment for that cancer had gone wrong because you saw it as personal and medical. And I think a lot of us have empathy for you in that regard. But now that you see how personal medical decisions are, will you call for the re-recruitment, restoration of full rank and back pay for the 8,600 service members who were vax mandated out of the military? Nice. Uh, no, I won't. Motherfucker. So on March 4th, 2021, you authored a memo. It was entitled Message to the Force. And in that memo, you said that there would be clear and swift accountability for anyone who didn't meet the highest standards of the Department of Defense. Now, wh- however this worked out, we all acknowledge that what you did here didn't meet the highest standards, right? You made a mistake. I, I admit it to... Yeah, okay, so we got that. So then the question is, what becomes the... The clear and swift accountability. Now, you're not going to be discharged, right? No? That, that's right. Okay, you're, you're not going to be suspended. You're not going to be demoted, and you're not going to have your pay cut. None of those things are going to happen to you, right? That's right. Okay, so you come here seeking some grace and some forgiveness. And I want you to know that one of the service members who you vax mandated out of the military sent me the parable of the unforgiving debtor. And it's in the book of Matthew Uh, It's verses uh, 21 to 35. The man fell down before his king and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay all the debt. Then his master, filled with pity for him, released him and forgave him of his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded payment. His fellow servant sat down and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called the man who had been forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant? just as I had mercy on you. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Mr. Secretary, you come to us seeking forgiveness, but you offer none. And it seems as though the pattern is repeated. You make a mistake, like on the VAX mandate and here regarding your notification, then you get busted. President Biden had to sign something into law reversing your, your vax mandate. You got busted here, not because you came forward, but because we learned of this through other means. And then after you get busted making a mistake, you, know, you, want, you want that benefit, but you don't want to extend it to others. Um, this isn't swift or clear. 
you're not meeting your own standards that you set for yourself. And you say that the DOD is a learning organization. Haven't you learned yet that the military is weaker, not stronger, with the 8,600 people that you've axed mandated out of the military? Uh, just one point, uh, uh, Congressman. The reason I'm here is because the chairman requested that I appear to, to uh, um, talk about the circumstances surrounding uh, my hospitalization. But don't you see the hypocrisy in it? Because you screwed up, we fixed your screw-up, and now you want grace, but these people who sought re religious exemptions, they got no such grace. And also, I just think it's ridiculous that we're in three wars, you went AWOL for three days, and we get two hours with you. If you can't spend more than two hours answering these questions, I don't know how you really operate in all these wars. As that hit home with you, Noah. He's gross. It's fucking disrespectful. Smug. No, no I will not be doing that. Fuck you. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and then he did the old, well, this isn't about them. This is about me. And, and I'm here for this reason, so we're not going to talk about that one. It's disgusting. Mm. You know, my heart really goes out to all those servicemen and women who got screwed out of the military, how they're probably jaded against the great careers, more than likely most of them had had. And for the unwavering service that they provide to our country throughout the course of the time that they were in. But what can you say? And that number is, you know, the 8,000, however many. Mm -hmm. I forget what the number was exactly. Close to 9K. Yeah. That number is just the ones who actually got removed. Yep. Officially. Like, there's a lot of people that retired early. There's a lot of people that just basically just let their service lapse without reenlisting because of all this shit. Like, the amount of people that we lost is incalculable. Yeah, and then you talk about comparing those numbers with the amount of people they're not getting to join the service right now. Because what's the likelihood of joining the military? It's either that you're going into transition, how dare me. Or they're trying to give people $20,000 bonuses right now to reenlist. Is $20,000 worth dying on the front lines in Ukraine, though? That's the question you have to ask yourself at this point. Yeesh. True story. But, uh, you know, Porsche. listen, we have to take it for what it is. The Biden regime had one of their worst weeks in a long time. It started with the Michigan primary, the border visit, these hearings, Hunter Biden and Lloyd Austin, the fact that Donald Trump looks like he sees some daylight into getting some W's from the Supreme Court to remain on the ballot, have presidential immunity, and have both of these cases start so late or even after the election that the rulings essentially won't even affect him if he wins the presidency. In addition... And in our last audio clip of the week, before we jump in with the Heritage Foundations, Jake Denton to talk about some big developments today. Elon Musk is bringing the pain in regards to suing over AI. I just want everybody to remember that if there's one thing Donald Trump does best, it's remember. And over the course of the last couple of weeks, everyone from Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, KJP, etc., have been taking small pot shots and making fun of Donald Trump. One of the Biden campaign strategies has been, as, as he seeks to win his nomination and, and maybe win re-election next year, is to compare every single thing that Donald Trump makes fun of Joe Biden to and spin it back like Donald Trump does it worse. And I'm talking about everything from physical ability to mental cognizance. Donald Trump at CPAC made a reference to Mercedes Schlapp talking about Melania Trump. In addition, there's been several times where Donald Trump jokes about the O'Biden regime, where this is essentially Barack Obama's third term. They take that 
And in the instances in the leftist media of where Donald Trump walks around the stage making fun of Joe Biden, the fact that he walks around like Joe Biden. We all know that this isn't true. Wait, they're they're trying to say that he's doing what Biden does? Yes. Oh, you, you got to see it every night on MSNBC and CNN. Well, you know, Donald Trump, he makes a lot of gaffes at these public speaking events. He messes up people's names all the time. He doesn't move as fast as he used to be. And it's just like, this is literally what they're running around with. They're like, yeah, they just want to always talk about Joe Biden. Joe Biden just had his physical this week. They said he was, they said he was a robust 81-year-old. Very, yeah. vigor. They use the term vigor. Oh! <laughs> yeah, I want to start having my, uh, my personal paid doctor do my, you know, medical diagnoses like that. No, you're fine. Without a <laughs> cognitive exam as well. But just remember, Donald Trump never forgets and took to True Social this week with one of his all-time bangers. Let's hear it. The radical left Democrats are at it again. They're constantly making up stories about me because <laughs> their candidate is a mental and physical basket case. Has never been anything like it. He's also the worst president in the history of our country. He went on a very poorly rated show last night, and he talked about Donald Trump and his wife. I don't know the name of my wife. He was referring to the fact that at CPAC, where I had a sold-out speech, the biggest audience they've had in years, I think maybe ever, I made the statement that Melania was very popular because when I mentioned her name, the audience went wild. I then looked at the two people, man and wife, Matt and Mercedes Schlapp, and I said, wow, they really like the first lady. So this got taken as the fact that I thought Mercedes was the first lady. It has nothing to do with that. These people are really dishonest. They are absolutely something. They have a horrible candidate <laughs> who's a horrible president. They make up things constantly. You take a look at when I use Barack Hussein Obama and I interject him into where it's supposed to be Biden, and I do it purposely for comedic reasons and for sarcasm, because a lot of people say that Obama's running the country, not Biden, because he's sleeping all the time. They say, oh, I don't know the name of the president. Or when I imitate this guy getting off a stage, what they do is they say, oh, he had trouble getting off a stage. I have no trouble getting off a stage. Anybody that watches what I do at rallies would say, wow, that's amazing. He can go two hours without a teleprompter, not making even a little mistake. Very few people, maybe almost nobody can do what I do. So here's the story. <laughs> the disinformation of the Democrats is unbelievable. They do it because they have a horrible candidate. Don't associate me with the mental midget that you portray, because I want to tell you, he Got should him. not be leading this country. And hopefully, on November 5th, he's not going to be. We're going to have a big election. We're going to have a big victory. And we're going to make America great again. Thank you. Noah, how much do you want to bet? <laughs> when Joe Biden was on Seth Meyers, we played the clip where he had a mental lapse because Seth Meyers asked him about his accomplishment. And then he's like, oh, well, anyway. That Donald Trump was up before any of his staffers, probably beat the Secret Service, to the recording room and was already in his suit. You know, none of that was scripted. That oh, was no. just pure unadulterated two minutes and 12 seconds of <laughs> Donald Trump just absolutely Ranting. shitting on Joe Biden. <laughs> and it's like, he called him a mental midget. Dude, how many times did he say horrible? It was awesome. But it, you know what? It kind of is the cherry on top for the week that was. We had a big one. We're going to be picking up a lot more delegates this weekend. We're going to have full comprehensive coverage on both of our Tuesday editions of the show. 
We're wrapping things up here on the second of our two all-new Friday editions of Steak for Breakfast, getting ready to jump in with Jake Denton. But before we do that, one last check-in with one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off your order. All right, joining us next on this big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, he does tech policy down at the Heritage Foundation. He's one of our tech experts when he comes and provides commentary here on the show. Mr. Jake Denton, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday, my friend. And uh, it seems to, we had a couple topics talking, uh, you know, that we were going to hash out today while you come on and, and, and share with our listenership. But we had some breaking news in the uh, tech industry this morning. Elon Musk uh, dropping the legal hammer. What have you got to uh, tell our listenership about that? Yeah, this is something that's uh, seemingly been brewing for almost a year now. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but Elon Musk was one of the original backers of OpenAI uh, when it was still a nonprofit entity that was operating on an open source model. And so that means that their code was readily available for anyone in the public domain to build on. And what happened a few years ago is that OpenAI wound up pivoting away from this business model and went closed source. And they ultimately ended up partnering with Microsoft and really became a subsidiary of uh, that Goliath. And so Elon is now suing them for essentially breach of contract. Uh, you know, his funds were given to them uh, because they were an open company, uh, because of the nonprofit uh, nature of their business um, and pivoting away, chasing that profit with Microsoft, he views as breach of contracts. So this is a very interesting case. Um, and obviously, if it's successful, then, you know, OpenAI is forced to open source their code or revert back to that kind of original founding principles that they, they embarked on. Uh, massive ripple effect for the AI industry um, and could really start a boom wave of, you know, developers using the open code to develop all sorts of crazy new tools. So um, a, a very interesting development for sure. Now, how important is it that Elon Musk is leading the charge on this? We all know he's got a million different, you know, ideas that he's always working on, whether it be Tesla or Starlink or SpaceX or, you know, the things he's working on on social media in regards to AI and uh, X, formerly Twitter. Because he's the person that's going to try and, you know, drop the hammer first and get ahead of this thing before, like you've always talked about, uh, when it comes to any of the AI companies, before it gets out of control, does, does it really matter if it's him? Or, or do you think that uh, the, the, the amount of attention it's going to garner from the public is, is probably going to uh, help him out? You know, in many ways, it could only be him, right? Like he is the only person left that understands that the real dystopic AI scenario we have isn't this like runaway model scenario where, you know, AI takes over the world. It's the consolidation of power into, you know, one of these big tech goliaths controlling all of the AI for everyone. Like that really is the doomsday scenario we have here. And it's quickly taking shape with Microsoft and with OpenAI. They're really running away with the race. And Elon is essentially the only force capable of counterbalancing them, of really putting up a fight. And so him, you know, taking it head on, really going after OpenAI and this business arrangement they have with Microsoft um, is essentially our last hope. In many ways, it mirrors what we had with Twitter. It's just at an earlier stage, right? Like uh, Twitter was the central convening point for all forms of political discourse. What we have here with OpenAI will be the foundational layer of business for the future. Every company in the world is going to be using these AI tools and if that trust and safety censorship type layer um, compromises all of, you know, 
<laughs> the business environment, it's going to be a nightmare. And Microsoft and OpenAI will uniquely control that type of relationship with companies and their employees and consumers. So huge concentration of power and only one man is really capable of taking it on. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting to see how many different mantles this guy chooses to pick up. And uh, you have to think he might have been laughing a little bit when the the lunar lander <laughs> that went up to the moon last week fell on its side and uh, they didn't really have any answers to that. So, you know, I think he's doing some incredible work in a lot of different fields. Never going to like the brain chip stuff, but, but at the end of the day, is he helping to make the world a better place? It seems like it. Um, he, he's kind of playing catch up to a lot of the things like all of the advocacy he's brought for the problem down on the U.S. southern border, the disaster and invasion that's happening down there over the course of the last, you know, half years. And it's interesting to see how Elon Musk has grown for being kind of like a, a billionaire, pseudo playboy, elite philanthropist over the course of, you know, his life and rise to fame. Do you think it's weird to see how kind of red pilled he's getting and the fact that, I mean, he's out there ratioing people at like three o'clock in the morning on social media. The guy doesn't sleep. He's probably always working, thinking, or at least gaming. And, you know, he just brings a lot to the table that most of these elitists, kind of in the same way that Donald Trump, they, they offer a more touchable, plausible alternative to just the people who sit up like in the castle and sip wine and, and laugh at the peasants all the time. Yeah, it's a really interesting arc we're seeing with him, right? Like he started as the golden boy of the left with his, you know, electric vehicles and Tesla and was really this environmentalist type brand he carried. But now he's like the bad boy of Silicon Valley and uh, is really challenging a lot of these uh, kind of uh, ideas that have taken over the valley. Uh, there's this vi mind virus that's just taken over every company. They no longer care about making, uh, you know, a better America, no longer care about innovating. All they care about is this kind of like social progressive uh, worldview. And so he's sitting there as this, you know, richest man in the world, uh, obviously one of our most brilliant innovators, watching his colleagues, his peers uh, fall victim to this uh, way of thinking. And I think for someone of his competency, of someone of his stature, uh, seeing all of the brightest minds in the world focus more on DEI instead of getting to Mars is something that you know you just can't sit back and watch. So um, it's great that we have him, but he's up against uh, you know a Goliath, and I hope he can <laughs> he can win because uh, you know our future hangs in the balance with that. Yeah, it's true. You know, you see a lot of his frustrations come out, especially on some of these panels. He said, I mean, there's been a lot of memes about his F off that he told, you know, during one of the answers and responses he gave during a panel at, at one of these huge events that he frequently attends. And then I, I just think it's wild the way he's kind of I was very wary of him when he when he bought Twitter, uh, even more so when he changed it over to X. But I think when you kind of look at the all encompassing way that he's reshaping the way we need to think about a lot of stuff getting away from those cultural issues when it comes to science and things of that nature and, and, and trying to take the human race to the next level. It seems like at, at least at this point, he's the man for the job. All right, Jake, I do want to segue a little bit. We got to talk about Google Gemini. We've got the 2024 presidential election. We're, we're deep in the throngs of the primary season right now. We'll be in general election season, at least for Donald Trump right around March 12th, you know, censorship and the impact of AI is probably going to have some big I guess, impact, you could say again, on this upcoming election. You have been someone, 
much like a lot of the congressmen and women and senators up on the Hill who have been blowing the whistle on this stuff from day one, it's all fun and games to see these memes and these videos until somebody takes it the wrong way and we could have international incidents, we could affect the outcome of elections and, and change people's minds and things of that nature. I want to kind of get a little insight from you how you're kind of tracking this as we're deep into the election season right now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Google Gemini, and that obviously took the world by storm. Uh, all the citizen journalists on X are posting uh, their findings that, you know, it can't generate an image of a white person. Uh, Elon Musk is worse than Hitler. It defends pedophilia. And, you know, we ended up having the image generation pause. They were uh, they called it unacceptable. They shut it down. Um, they're trying to tinker with it. It'll probably come back in a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, the core model is still there. It's operational. Um, and, you know, Sundar, the CEO of Google, puts out this letter talking about the massive failure and you read it and you're meant to believe that this is some form of engineering issue. It's a problem with the code, a bug, but it's really a problem with the engineers yep. and the culture that has taken over Google, just as we were talking about a couple of moments ago. And, you know, when you consider the way that campaigns and candidates are going to lean on these tools for the next generation of uh, electoral politics, it's very troubling because the underlying foundation is obviously skewed towards the furthest to the left worldview you could possibly imagine. And, you know, the tools available to the general public are, you know, uh, drop in the bucket compared to the broader ability of these models that, uh, you know, corporate partners or even bad actors at a state level can use. And what we're beginning to see here is that this is not a level playing field. Uh, the right will not have unique access to these tools the way that the other side will. Um, and in many cases, this is because they've been built to, uh, you know, isolate that worldview. They do not want the rights uh, kind of ideas, vision for the future to be reflected in the generated responses, whether it be images or text. And so um, as we you know, chart course, we go further into the future and these uh, models are being built uh, behind a walled garden, right? Like there is no access, there's no view into how the models are built, what they value. Um, it's very easy to see how this becomes a runaway train. And you know, the future is built upon these models that fundamentally hate us. Uh, and that's what you're seeing with uh, Google Gemini. And it's going to have a ripple effect, not only in the election, but in business, uh, in the classroom. There's going to be all of these uh, downstream effects of something as inconsequential, seemingly, and funny as it not being able to generate a white person. Um, so it's important to take a bigger view of this because we're going to feel this for the next, uh, you know, probably the rest of our lives, frankly, uh, if it's not resolved in the next several months, which seems like a massive task, but sure. it's one that we all need to pay attention to. And how hard is it now to kind of rely on any kind of congressional impact or oversight on this? I mean, running into a general election season, the entire House of Representatives, obviously, is all up for re-election. There's a huge Senate map that's unfolding this year. You've got, in addition to that, you know, the wide open border and all of the issues that kind of stem into that, the inflation, the crime. It seems like American families can't put food on the table, but... The stuff that's going on behind the scenes, and especially with these AI companies, these decisions that are being made, and you said it goes back to the development team and the people that run these programs and run these organizations are allowing for the door to be open that, that are going to be able to have very impactful consequences on things like election, which can continue that downward trend, that push towards the radical progressive left. It seems like at this point, right now, what we have to do is is bring some of these stronger members back who have pushed on these companies uh, at, at a time when everybody's resources seems to just be pulled really thin. 
Yeah, you know, it's very difficult because obviously the members of Congress, uh, you know, that you have on your show, a lot of these great champions are focused on really important things, right? The border, um, all these different culture wars that are happening. But on the sideline, you know, out of you, you know, sometimes pops in like with the Google Gemini story, our future is being fought for. Um, and there really aren't a lot of soldiers lining up to, to get into battle. Uh, and in many ways, that's uh, a failure of this Congress and, you know, Congress in the past. Uh, because they never got educated on this issue, right? Like the AI development did not start in the last two years with GPT. It started, you know, five, six, seven years ago when OpenAI was first really getting rolling um, and even a little bit before that. But we had all this time, this long runway to educate ourselves, to understand the battle, to understand our opponents, and we didn't. So now it's playing catch up and that's a very hard game to play, but we have to engage in this battle uh, because it truly will define our future just as immigration will. Uh, if you don't control these AI models, if you don't have a um, you know fair and balanced tech system like this, it will be in the classrooms. It'll be your HR boss. It'll have all these different impacts on your life. And there isn't anyone you can appeal to because you're appealing to the model, right? Like there is, uh, there's no pathway to undo this. So it's very troubling, and we just have to hope that uh, you know people start paying attention. Last thing I want to touch with you on, Jake, it kind of encompasses everything we talked about this morning. We call you a tech expert on the show, but your main focus and drive is is the policy aspect of it, working on things that hopefully will be applied, let's just say moving forward, but especially in the administration after the election of this year. How important is it, in addition to having strong men and women up on Capitol Hill who are going to advocate and push for legislation and reform on this stuff, kind of get ahead of it, is it good to have, but in addition, have the legislation, the comprehensive solutions that are going to back up what they're going to be you know, arguing over and trying to get to the bottom of next year when hopefully we can get Donald Trump back in the White House and have a Republican uh, back in the Oval Office who's going to allow for, to see some real big tech reforms come down the pike and uh, hopefully get ahead of this thing before it gets too out of control. Yeah, it's a huge piece of the puzzle, right? I mean, uh, half the battle for these congressional offices or the next president is getting those policy solutions ready to go in a state that is actionable. And in some cases that can take years, right? Like these complex topics such as AI governance aren't something you can just snap your fingers and solve. Right. And so our goal in our you know day-to-day -day capacity is to really fill that research gap and to have these types of actionable policy items deployable, uh, ready to you know sign on day one. And so that's really the the goal is to um, spend this gap period where you know the election's going on and a lot of people aren't paying attention to policy. We keep fighting, we keep churning along and trying to have those things uh, ready to go. Whether it's AI governance, social media reform, you know, repealing Section two hundred and thirty, things of that nature that aren't as sexy anymore. You know, people don't really care about, pay attention to. Um, but are still plaguing the American way of life, right? Like they are have a daily impact. So that's our goal. That's what we're working on every day. And I think we're in a really good spot to have a day one impact, uh, you know, come 2025. Yeah, I mean, we had a congressional oversight committee where Mark Zuckerberg was up on the Hill just a few weeks ago. We played a couple of clips from it you know, uh, where you're seeing 230 still be a major factor into, you know, people's lives and it, it affects family. Sometimes, unfortunately, they were talking about uh, some of the victims that have, you know, fallen prey. And then these companies are not held to account. And when you're worried about just trying to get to the baseline, like, okay, you should not be uh, propagating like child pornography on your social media platforms, then you have the whole AI component. It just seems like a lot of things to tackle at the same time. Lucky for us, we have people like you who are working hard and, and honestly are on the front lines, Jake. We're, we're going to live link your 
links to the Heritage Foundation in our show description today, but we want all of our listenership who's here and you maybe for the first time to be able to follow you. So where can they find you on social media? Yeah, I'm primarily on X at Real J Denton. Uh, you can find my commentary from everything from AI to uh, you know social media policy on there. Uh, that's my main vehicle now. So uh, yeah, check me out. This guy is not computer generated. He is the real deal and the man that's working on big tech policy down at the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Jake Denton, thanks for joining us on the show. Have a great rest of the weekend. Thanks for having me. Busy end of the news week, but I uh, think we nailed it. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now almost 345 other editions of the show, it's pretty simple. Follow us across any downloadable podcasting platform. We prefer Apple, but we're also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to the show, follow it, make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. In addition, follow us across social media, Twitter, Getter, Truth Social, and Instagram. Find the Steak for Breakfast accounts, follow them, hit the notification bell, and share the show with your friends. We want to thank all of our guests for coming down and sharing with us today. Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles and Tim Burchett. Indiana Congresswoman Aaron Hochin. The Heritage Foundation's Jake Denton. New York Young Republican Club President Gavin Wax. And author, attorney, and America First Patriot, Miss Christina Bob. You guys all helped make steak great again. Guys, we're heading into the weekend, but never fret. We'll be back with an all-new edition of Steak for Breakfast on Tuesday. Two new shows. At this point, we're featuring South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman, Indiana Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, Wade Miller from the Center for Renewing America, and John Pierce from the National Constitutional Law Union. So on behalf of the pod team, I'm Rome. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and take care. is the P-29 Stun Baton. It carries a 4,000-watt charge and is your best option for enforcing Border Patrol law. This is gonna be so fucking sweet. The baton is non-lethal, but powerful. Hey, we got some! Mexicans at 2 o'clock! Let's get ready, recruits! Must be a couple dozen of them! This is the U.S. Border Patrol. Stop where you are. Turn around and get back to work. There's too many of them. We're going to need backup.